Good morning, JICF. Uh, today we're going to be jumping back into our series in the book of Matthew. So we're going to pick up where we left off in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. And we'll continue into Matthew 15, all the way to verse 9. So let's begin by opening up God's word. Matthew 14, verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What, would, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. And God, we thank you for your spirit. So Spirit, today God, guide us. Help us to rightly understand your word. Help us to rightly apply your law. Help it to do its work in us. And help us to see you more clearly. Please be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in chapter 15, verse 1, we've seen that the Pharisees and the scribes had come up to Galilee from Jerusalem. Now let's quickly try to understand what's going on here. All right, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were the protectors of the religion and honor of the Jewish people. Right? And Jesus' ministry was starting to make waves. So the guardians of Jewish religion and honor were deployed from Jerusalem to go find out what was going on. And apparently, at this time, the only thing they could find to accuse Jesus of was that his disciples' hands were dirty. I mean, can you imagine? They come all this way and, well, um, clearly you've performed miracles. Uh, you seem to know the scriptures really well and you teach those scriptures with authority. But um, your, your disciples' hands are dirty, so therefore we're going to reject you. We're going to call you a false teacher. I mean, how ridiculous is this? But <laughs> what the Pharisees are trying to do is they're trying to keep their status by publicly shaming Jesus for not living up to their standards. You see, they had put themselves in a position of judgment over Jesus, and they're looking down on him and his disciples. 
Uh, why? Why are they doing this? Why did they feel the need to come all the way up from Jerusalem just to nitpick about this miracle worker's ministry? Well, why do any of us feel the need to look down on others? Where does this motivation to cast judgment on others usually come from? Well, it comes when we feel threatened, right? And, and what kind of people are the quickest to feel threatened by others? People that are insecure. And the religious establishment of the day felt threatened by Jesus, and rightly so. And that fear exposed their insecurities. You see, throughout Scripture, the Pharisees are, are shown as being those who are constantly seeking the approval of God and man by their outward displays of what they considered to be righteousness. Remember how Christ describes them in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The hypocrites who love to stand and pray or give to the poor in the synagogues, in the public places, at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. The Pharisees were consumed with gaining the approval of others. And when that approval was threatened, they would lash out with harsh judgment against the one who threatened it. Now, if we're honest, I think most of us would admit that we spend a lot of our life searching after the approval and acceptance of others. We want to be loved and appreciated and valued. And often these desires radically affect our lives. One author described it like this. He said that throughout our entire lives, we have been seeking a positive verdict in the courtrooms of human opinion. That is, ultimately, the approval that we're seeking is a positive verdict in the courtroom of human opinion. Now, of course, the problem with that is that the, in the courtroom of human opinion, the verdict is never final. It's never in. Even if everyone important in your life thought you were the greatest person in the world, it wouldn't be enough. Instead, you'd find yourself overwhelmed at the task of trying not to disappoint everybody who had such high expectations for you now. The verdict in the courtroom of human opinion is never final, and it will never be enough. But still, I think there's even a deeper reason why you and I long for this approval. Uh, author and pastor J.R. Vassar, he explains the reason when he writes, that our desire for a positive verdict in the human courts is the surface rumbling of our deepest desire for the ultimate verdict that comes down from the ultimate court. You see, in each one of us is a deep desire to be justified. That's why all of us are longing for approval and acceptance. We, we long to be loved. We, we want to be important. These longings that we all have for human approval are simply the surface rumblings of our deepest desire to be finally and fully accepted and approved by God himself. And we know that in ourselves, we don't measure up. So, how do we get it? That's, that's the ultimate question. We long for this approval, and until we have it, we'll never be free from being controlled by what others think about us, or at the very least, by what we think about ourselves. But how do we get this 
full and final approval of the one whose opinion matters the most. People have been asking this question since the beginning of time. And if, if we look throughout history, we'll find that people naturally answer this question in a surprisingly similar way. The truth is that all of us naturally seek God's approval the same way that we seek the approval of other people. If you look at the many different world religions, one of the similarities that you'll find is that they divide people up into good and bad. And the way that you relate to God is by being good. So there's rules to be obeyed. There's rituals to be embraced. There's traditions to be followed. And that tells you what group you're in, if you're in the good or the bad group. These religions teach that if you want to gain God's approval, you'll need to follow a certain set of rules and live a certain way. So what ends up happening is, is these lists of rules are developed, and, and these rules are usually just difficult enough so that everyone notices that you're trying to follow them and, and, and notices the sacrifice you're making to keep them. But they're easy enough to make you feel good about being able to keep most of them, at least most of the time, right? And this is exactly what the Pharisees had done. The Pharisees had forsaken the authority of God's law and instead replaced it with their own religious traditions. And in doing so, not only did they miss the whole point of God's law, but they actually end up doing the exact opposite of pleasing God. In verses 3 through 6, Jesus gives a damning example of how the Pharisees have perverted the worship of God by adding traditions and misapplications of God's commands to the law of God. He says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Verse 4, For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And we don't have time to unpack all of what this is about, but basically the Pharisees had ignored God's clear command to honor your father and mother and replaced it with a tradition that allowed them to serve themselves while still appearing holy. Now, it's easy to look at the Pharisees and, and realize what idiots they were for trying to add to the word of God or to look at other religions and, and see the emptiness of man-made rituals and rules. But the reality is that this temptation to replace the word of God with the opinions and traditions of men in an attempt to earn God's approval it's a danger in every culture, in every time, in every place. And, and so today I want us to consider the many ways that we, yes, even we who call ourselves Christians, can find ourselves falling into the same old traps. Because as long as you and I are, are still trying to get human approval through our performance, we can be assured that there's still parts of us that are trying to get God's approval through our performance. And, and that's why this 
passage today is for all of us. Right? Matthew's gospel is going to show us what happens when we try to gain God's acceptance by obeying the law in our own strength. Specifically, I, I want us to see four things. Four things that happen when we try to earn God's acceptance through our performance. Number one, we obscure our view of God's character. When you believe that the way to gain God's approval is through obeying his law, the first thing you want to know is exactly what is and isn't included in it. You want to know where the lines are. What can I do? What is permissible? What is not permissible? And, and that's, that's all that the Pharisees were doing here. Remember, they had accused Jesus' disciples of not washing their hands. Now, this accusation had nothing to do with hygiene. All right? It had everything to do with ritual cleanliness in the sight of God. And it was part of a whole system of religious ritual that the Jewish leaders had come up with. This was an elaborate system of rituals that included rules for how to wash everything in the house. These Pharisees had a lot of rules. They, they held to something called the tradition of the elders. And according to that tradition, you could not eat unless you had washed your hands. Not only that, but there are different ways you need to wash your hands depending on what you've been doing, different ways of washing different dishes in the house, washing your feet, all sorts of ritual. And the tradition of the elders had taken the, the 613 commands in the Old Testament, and then on top of that, they had laid all these detailed lists of do's and don'ts to protect them from committing uh, from breaking any of these commands. But what happened is, is the list, the tradition, started to become more important than the laws. The truth is, is, is probably some of us have approached God's law in a similar way. I mean, have you ever asked where the line was? Have you ever been more concerned ab about how close to the line I can get without breaking it than you are about what God actually thinks and what he intends in giving us the law? I mean, this, this question usually comes up when I'm talking to, to teenagers, right? And, and we're talking about sexual impurity, right? And the question is like, well, what exactly can I get away with? How close to the line of being sexually impure can I get without actually crossing the line, right? We wanna, they want to know how, how much can they get away with without actually breaking the rule. I mean, I, I see this all the time in my kids. I remember my, my oldest daughter, she was nine months old. And I remember her and my wife and I were sitting in the living room and we had this glass cabinet. And my wife said, Esther, don't touch this glass cabinet. She crawls over, nine months old, gets up, looks at us, puts out her hand, and keeps getting closer and closer, keeps looking at us, keeps... You know, how close can I get before I get into trouble, right? It's, it's in our hearts, right? We... We want a list of do's and don'ts. We want to see how much we can get away with. Why? 
Why do we do this? Why do we act like this? Well, often we ask these questions because we view God's law as restrictive. And yet we know we need to keep it in order to please God. So we want to know where the line is so we can get as close to it as possible without crossing it. We want God's approval, but we also want as much freedom as possible. And we think that God's law comes to take away our freedom, to take away our joy. But notice what happens when we start to think like this. God's law becomes detached from God's character. The truth is is that our God is the most generous, the most gracious being in the universe. But this view of his law sees him as restrictive and stingy. God's law is meant to be a gift that sets us free from our slavery to our selfish desires. But this view sees God's law as bondage and our selfish desires as the path to true freedom. Whenever we try to use God's law in order to gain his approval, what inevitably begins to happen is that his law becomes divorced from who God is. And like the Pharisees, we stop thinking about God and our focus is fixed on the law and where the line is. A second thing that happens when we try and gain God's approval by obeying his law is condemnation. The law kills. It condemns. It convicts. That's, that's what it does. In light of the law, sin and selfishness and pride is exposed and is condemned. Like a spotlight, the law exposes whatever it's pointed at. And so whenever we try and gain God's approval through the law, one of two things happens. Either the spotlight of the law is pointed at our hearts and it exposes our sinfulness and it leaves us condemned and feeling hopeless. Or, because we don't like feeling like that, we try to point the spotlight away from us or at our behavior and we we compare it to other people and let the law condemn them while making us feel better about ourselves. Let me ask, how many times have you found that the law of God has either led you to feel worse about yourself or better about yourself? Right? How many times has God's law led you to either despair because of your failure to keep it or has led you to compare yourself to others so that the law condemns them while making you feel better about yourself? This is because by itself, the law condemns. That's what it does. Romans 7 verse 10 says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Or in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6, Paul says, The letter kills. In Matthew 15, we, we see that rather than turning the spotlight of the law on their own hearts, The Pharisees chose to deflect it onto their external behavior. And then they compared that to Jesus' disciples in order to feel better about themselves. When you and I try to use God's rules to gain God's approval, all we end up doing is either condemning ourselves or judging others. 
We either end up in despair or we end up feeling proud. And this isn't because the law is bad, right? Paul says in Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem isn't with God's law. The problem is with us. Paul goes on in verse 13 of chapter 7 in Romans. He says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. The law simply exposes the cancer of sin that everyone is dying from. And when we shine it on ourselves, it leads us to despair. But often, in order to avoid that despair, we choose to shine it on others. And then feel better about ourselves because they're condemned. And we've forgotten about our own condemnation. You see, using God's word to feel better about ourselves or to try and get something from God is a complete misuse of God's word. God didn't give us the law so that we could externalize it and make it doable and then use it to condemn others and feel better about ourselves. He didn't give us the law so that we could jump through all of its hoops in order to somehow pry his approval from his stingy and restrictive hands. He didn't give us the law to isolate us from himself in independence and pride nor did he give us the law to isolate us in guilt and shame and despair. When we try to earn God's favor, God's acceptance by our performance, we obscure our view of God's character. We bring condemnation on ourselves and on others. And thirdly, we end up engaging in false worship. Notice what Jesus says in verses 7 through 9. He says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Trying to use the law in order to gain God's acceptance leads to false worship. And the reason that it leads to false worship is because we can't do it. And so we end up twisting it into something that we can do. And that results in false worship. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3, verses 19 to 20. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is to humble us and shut our mouths because we simply aren't good enough to earn God's approval on our own. A few verses earlier, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, Paul has already said, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You and I simply aren't good enough to earn God's approval. And when we act like we are, all we do is prove ourselves to be hypocrites. All right, here, here's what I'm saying. When you and I try and worship God as good people, when we think that by our devotions or coming to church or giving money to God or singing loudly or whatever religious activity we're doing or, or righteous activity in, in our lives throughout the week, if we think that somehow through these things we're gaining points with God, we're gaining favor, what we're really doing is, is we're engaging in false worship. The Pharisees had taken the Old Testament commands about purification and had twisted them into something that they were not. The cleanliness laws were intended to drive God's people to him, to remind them that they were dirty, and he and he alone could wash their hearts clean. They were never intended to make God's people think that if they scrubbed their hands long enough and hard enough that they, they could become pleasing to God in their own strength. The reason that he gave us the law was to drive us to him for grace and mercy. He gave us the law to serve as a mirror to show us the truth about ourselves and to drive us to his grace for help. In fact, this was clearly the, the original purpose of the cleanliness laws that the Pharisees misused and misunderstood. You see, the, the original purpose of these laws about washing and what is clean and what is unclean were meant to be physical reminders of a deeper spiritual reality. And the, these cleanliness laws told God's people that before they came into the presence of God, they would need to be cleansed, not just by the washing of their hands, but the washing of their hearts. Just like their hands needed to be cleaned off, so also their hearts needed to be cleaned off, but only God could clean their hearts. And in order to do that, the Bible teaches that it required the shedding of innocent blood. Remember what we said about the law. The law condemns. It kills. And before the people could come before God, something would have to die in order to cleanse the stain of sin from their hearts. This was clearly the purpose of the laws about washing and clean and unclean things. If you have any doubts about that, you can, you can look in, in Exodus chapter 30 where God commands Moses to make a bronze basin for washing and to put it right before the altar in the tabernacle. Or Leviticus chapters 11 to 15 where, where all of the instructions about being unclean and, and clean are. Why? So that the people could pre prepare themselves for Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement where the sacrifice would be offered for their sins. The cleanliness laws were never meant to be separated from the need for sacrifice, the need for atonement. They were to be external reminders of internal realities. These were the passages that the Pharisees got all their rules about washing your hands from, but they had missed the point. 
The bronze basin for washing was in the temple right next to the altar of sacrifice. Don't you see the water was there so that they could wash the dirt off their hands, which was meant to remind them of the dirt in their hearts and to prepare them to offer sacrifices to God so that he could take the innocent blood of the sacrifice and use it to clean their hearts. The cleanliness laws were intended to drive God's people to the altar where they could see firsthand the death that they deserved. And they could taste firsthand the grace that God offered when he chose to accept the blood of of an innocent animal in their place. That's what the law was intended to do. They were meant to humble God's people, not make God's people proud. They were meant to drive them to the altar in utter dependence on God, not to make them think that because they washed their hands so good, God would approve them. These laws were meant to produce humble worship as God's people responded to his love for them by loving him back. But instead, the Pharisees had used these laws to condemn others and make them feel proud of their own accomplishments. The Pharisees were fools to think that they could earn God's favor by washing their hands. They'd forgotten what Jeremiah had made so clear in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22, where he wrote, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. This brings us to the last and, and the ultimate result of trying to earn the acceptance of God on our own. Death. In seeking to save our own souls, we lose our souls. We become like the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, right? Look great on the outside, on the inside, spiritually dead. You know what the saddest thing about this whole passage is? The saddest thing about the Pharisees' misuse of God's law is that by trying to earn God's favor on their own, they missed out on the greatest gift that God has ever given. In trying to earn God's favor on their own, they actually cut themselves off from God himself. What an incredible tragedy. They were standing in the very presence of the one whose blood could make their dirty hearts clean. But they missed him. In trying to avoid the condemnation of the law, they lost the very life they were trying to save. But if they'd just been willing to let the law condemn them, if they would have let it kill their pride and crucify their control and their self-reliance, then what they would have found is that they were standing in the presence of the very one who was able to raise the dead. So today I have a question for you. Have you let the law condemn you Have you let it slay your precious pride until there's nothing left for you to boast about? Have you come to the place in your life where you no longer believe that you're better than anyone else 
but instead have cried out with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 24, who said, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? If you've never turned the light of God's law upon yourself and your sinful heart and let it undo you, let today be the day. Let today be the day that you realize that Paul was talking about you when he said in Romans 3.10, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. He was talking about you when he said, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Today, let each of us turn the mirror of God's perfect law upon ourselves and realize just how far short we fall. We simply aren't good enough. I know, I know some of you out there get this. Some of you understand this. Some of you are well aware of your failure to live up to God's standards. Some of you have drunk deeply of the condemnation that comes from the law and you feel overwhelmed with the guilt and the shame that it brings. Some of you are living in despair, tormented by the wretched person that you are and you don't know where to look for hope. Well, today God has a message for you as well. For all of you who feel weighed down by sin and by guilt. Just as, as Pak Yusuf preached a few weeks ago in Romans 8, right after Paul has cried out in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, he goes on to say this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How? How can that be? Well, Paul, Paul continues, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Our God has done for us what we can't do. He's offered us freely what we could never earn on our own. Just like the purpose of the law in the Old Testament was to drive God's people to the altar where they would confess their sins and sacrifice an innocent animal in their place, the same way today God's law is meant to drive us to the cross. Because the cross is the ultimate altar that the Old Testament altars pointed to. And Jesus is the ultimate innocent sacrifice that every other sacrifice was meant to be a shadow of. Just listen as, as I read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4. For it is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
not only have we all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but nothing we can do and nothing we can sacrifice can ever make up for it. It continues in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, will you heed the warning of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees? Will you acknowledge that there's nothing you can do to fix yourself or to make up for your sin? There's nothing you could sacrifice that would gain God's acceptance. Will you confess your sins? Will you let the, the light of the law shine on you and, and lay down all your best works and let go of your control and with empty hands come to Jesus? Will you sing along with the old hymn that, that calls out, Wash me, wash me, Savior, or I die. If you'll do this, what you'll find is that the verdict is in. That verdict that you and I have always been longing for. In Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. In Christ, God has perfected for all time all those who are being sanctified. In Christ, the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us. In Christ, you and I can receive the full and final verdict our souls have always longed for. And with, when this happens, it sets us free. It sets us free from living for ourselves. It sets us free from living for the approval of others. It sets us free from our insecurities. It sets us free to love God and free to love others, not in order to earn God's approval, but because in Christ we already have it. You see, I don't, I, I don't want you to walk away from this thinking that obedience to God doesn't matter. It's not what I'm saying at all. Jesus himself tells us that if we love him, we will obey his commandments. But that obedience comes not through our own, self elf, our, our own self-effort to earn acceptance with God. It flows from our love for Jesus. And where does that love come from? Why can we love Jesus? Because he first loved us. It all goes back to Jesus. The full and final verdict of the one who matters most is in. And because he has approved of us in Christ, we don't have to worry about what, it, what anyone else thinks. So, so church, I, I ask you today, let the law of God show you just how needy you are. Let it kill your pride and destroy your self-confidence and let it drive you to Jesus as your only hope. And you will find that in Christ there is therefore no condemnation. In Christ you have full acceptance with your God. Amen. Let's pray. 
Dear Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, God, we, no, no matter how many times we hear your good news, it never gets old. It never gets outdated. It never loses, loses its relevancy, Lord. And so I pray, God, that, that through your word today, you've opened up the eyes of our hearts and that, that your law, your good law has shone on our hearts and revealed things that we need to give over, areas where we're, we're still trying to earn your approval on our own. God, I pray that everyone who hears this will, will let the law condemn them and that they will die with Christ and be raised again to new life as they are hidden in Christ. God, and then send us out. Empower us by your love to obey and to love others and to point to our great God who has set us free. Dear Lord, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.